Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons and my aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. The Dererum Natura is an ancient text written sometime in the 1st century BCE by the Roman philosopher and poet Lucretius. It's his only known work, although it is likely he had many others. The title translates to On the Nature of Things and it concerns his vision of the nature of the universe, of life, man, and his relation with the environment. It is written in an explanatory style known as didactism, and attempts to apply an epicurean lens to the understanding of life. In a world ruled by mythological gods and deities, where the explanation for life was a supreme being, Lucretius attempted to show that the universe was comprised of elementary particles which obeyed simple laws. All things worked according to these universal laws, including life itself. In accordance with the teachings of Epicurus, Lucretius did not deny that God existed, but rather asserted that the gods were indifferent to the life of people. Life itself was nothing more than an assemblage of atoms in empty space. Mind, body and soul exists entirely within the physical realm, even if some aspects of it remain elusive. Lucretius writes in Book 3 of Dererum Natura, First, I say that mind, which we often call the understanding and in which is placed the guiding and directing power of life, is no less part of man than hand, foot and eyes are parts of one whole living animal. And yet many philosophers have thought mental sensation is not located in a specific place, but is instead a certain vital habit of the body, what Greeks call harmony, which causes us to live with a capacity for sense, although the mind has no determined place. Such a view is known as materialism, although the term is synonymous with physicalism. This is in contrast to the popular notion of valuing things over ideas. The materialism referred to in this episode is of the ontological kind. Materialism in philosophy is a metaphysical position that asserts that everything that exists is material. That is to say, there is nothing that can exist or be caused beyond the material or the physical. Everything that appears to be beyond the physical supervenes upon it or is caused by a physical chain of events. This claim is as much a statement of fact about the physical world we inhabit as a philosophical position. Indeed, it is a principle which underpins the entirety of the physical sciences. Lucretius's work on the Derum Natura marked the beginning of the modern age as people began to consider that perhaps reality could be explained only in physical terms. There was no supernatural realm influencing affairs on the earth or across the universe. When humanity began to look for physical explanations for the nature of reality, alchemy became chemistry, and sorcery became biology and physics. The modern age, the technical revolutions which have brought us to this point, where you're listening to this in a way neither of us can fully understand, is akin to a modern form of sorcery but it can all be explained through complex but reducible principles, the laws of nature, which govern the universe. Clearly, materialism is not the end of the story, though, as for centuries after the time of Lucretius, physicalists were executed as heretics for believing that the souls of people were merely the artefacts of consciousness. Such a view persists among the vast majority of humanity even today. 
Yet however each individual reconciles their thoughts on the material and the immaterial, the natural sciences have demonstrated not only how the universe works, but how its fundamental principles can be utilised to improve the lives of people. There are few civilizations on earth who have not been touched by the materialistic spells cast by humans. As our knowledge of the physical world has expanded, so too has our ingenuity. Yet for all that we can observe and examine, from the microscopic universe inside the atom to the distant past at the far reaches of the observable universe, we are yet to see inside the experiential workings of the conscious mind. And while we can scan the myriad regions of the brain with delicate instruments, no one can describe precisely what it is like to be you. This is the challenge of materialism, and part of the hard problem of consciousness. Despite an endless line of physical explanations for the universe and its contents, experience remains uncharted in the material world. This then begs the question, are the constituents of the conscious mind actually physical? Does the mind even exist at all? And the question itself may be as much semantic as philosophical, so let's consider materialism more concretely. Materialism is primarily concerned with that which occupies space. This is an ontological claim which appears to disintegrate when considering the non-material. We do not need to invoke the supernatural to see that many concepts exist without needing physical space. Of course, the mind is significant, but so are many concepts derived directly from physics, notions like velocity or momentum. Defining materialism, then, requires a definition of the necessity of space to be loosened, to include things which may act upon physical objects, but which do not exist in space themselves. Velocity, for example, can be demonstrated to exist because of its effects on physical objects, or sound could be measured by instruments sensitive to the fluctuations in air or other fluids. Thoughts, too, can be considered material as they influence our actions in the physical world. So the key factor here is causality. For the non-material to be considered in the realm of the material, there must exist a causal relationship, like the flickering of a candle as proof of the exhalation of one's breath. A thought that leads to action is evidence of the physical nature of the mind. Materialism attempts to deal with this problem of psychology by considering reductionist or non-reductionist approaches. On the one hand, there's the hard reductionist approach, and one theory from this approach is known as mind-brain identity theory. This theory simply reduces all psychological phenomena to the physical realm. For this reason, materialism is better described as physicalism, according to modern philosophical and scientific theories. It claims that if we could know enough about the brain and the physics which dictate its workings, then we could theoretically reconstruct it back to some set of original conditions. We could then prove through physical calculations how each thought and emotion arises and why. By this reckoning, it's entirely possible and probably inevitable that one day we will construct an artificial mind that is capable of thinking and feeling in much the same way that we humans do. If consciousness is caused by physical properties of matter, then we just need to figure out how to emulate that without all of the messy fleshiness. In a reductionist paradigm, Subjective experience can be waved away by simply reducing it to the physical processes taking place within the brain and the body. Say you kick your toe against an errant chair leg. That chair leg stands oblivious to your sensation of pain and your curses. But kicking your toe against a chair leg is most certainly a physical action with physical consequences. 
The sensation of pain is mapped to your nervous system. It follows a physical path from toe to your brain. We know this because should that path be interrupted by some means, say through a drug or a severing of a nerve, the signal does not get through. The experience of pain can be attributed directly to a causal physical action. However, the experience of pain can also occur without kicking a cheerleg. We may experience many emotional, mental states seemingly independent of our physical environment. We may even remember the experience of kicking our toe against that cheerleg at some time in the future. The memory alone can be enough to make our toe throb in re-experienced pain, causing us to glance scornfully at that cheerleg across the room. There may be a mental process taking place that causes the memory to appear in our consciousness, but it is not causal. The chair did not feel any pain from our toe, either actual or remembered. The universe did not feel your pain. Your pain did not cause the chair to move in apology. It may cause you to break the chair or alter your movement patterns in future to avoid it. But in that moment of experiencing pain, it is you alone who is experiencing it subjectively. To all conscious human beings, with perhaps few exceptions, the experience of consciousness is undeniable. We live vast, complex, mental lives well beyond the day-to-day interface of our physical body with the physical world. A constant dialogue plays out. We are compelled to revisit past experiences or imagine future ones. We feel emotions and sensations that are connected with both states and many others which we often find hard to pin down and put our finger on or even describe. We get anxious, but we don't know why. We feel spooked. Our spidey senses are on alert, even though we may see no immediate threat. We are moved by a book or a song or a TV show, a memory or a fleeting thought that reveals a depth of experience which we can never explain. There was no one else like you. There is only you. Intuitively, in an ironic way, we feel distinct from the physical, and thus the idea of physical reductionism is unsatisfying. A computer may be reducible to ones and zeros, but are we as well? Is experience reducible to fleshy bits in an imagined universe? Experience seems to transcend the physical world. The American philosopher Thomas Nagel approached materialism in his famous 1974 article entitled What Is It Like to Be a Bat? He describes the subjective character of experience as something it is like to be a conscious organism. What the it is is unclear to all but the one doing the experiencing. But is it enough to say that if it is experiencing something, then it is conscious, and therefore that must be explainable in physical terms? That's what the reductionist paradigm would suggest. The nature of experience is of crucial importance to understanding whether materialism can be used to reduce the psychological world to the physical. And this is where things get interesting. Consider the phenomena of experience. We touched on this just before when we considered kicking that cheerleg. Perhaps I should have used standing on a Lego brick as the analogy. While the process by which pain is felt is physical, the subjective experience of that pain is phenomenal. That is, it is an experience that can only be understood by you. The brain creates the sensation of pain even though your brain did not bump into the cheerleg. Your brain is not in pain even though that's where the sensation of pain is being created. The pain is not a physical experience, it is an imagined response to a series of physical events. If you are unfortunate enough to find yourself in the care of a paramedic or a doctor, you may have found that they ask you to say, on a scale of 1 to 10, how bad is the pain you are experiencing? They may even show you a small card with an array of smiley faces and various states of disposition. 
They do this because only you know how your pain feels and its relativity to other states of pain you may have experienced in the past. There is no objective measure of pain, and pain comes in many forms. Your tolerance of pain can and does vary. It's a phenomenological experience. I've had to say that about six different times to get it right. Unique to you in a moment, pain is a useful example because of its salience. However, there are more abstract examples to demonstrate the highly subjective nature of phenomenological experience. I'm getting there. These are known as qualia, what things seem like to us. Pain is one, but how about the redness of red? This is a common example. Or how moving a sunset is, or the richness of an orchestral sound, or the refreshing crisp sweetness of an apple. The philosopher Daniel Dennett defined qualia according to four qualities. He says that qualia are ineffable, that is, they cannot be communicated. They're intrinsic as they're solely related to the thing which is experienced. They're private as the experience cannot be shared, and they're apprehensible only by consciousness. Qualia may be reducible to physical causal phenomena such as the wavelength of uh, red light or the glucose contents of an apple, but such physical categorizations cannot help us to understand what it is like to experience them. You cannot explain the experience of red to a person born without sight. Although our subjective human experience cannot be shared, we can at least understand what it might be like to be someone else, as our methods of physical and mental introspection are more or less the same. We all share a brain. However, Nagel argued that a bat employs a methodology for situating itself and its prey in the physical world which is entirely unique from our own. It uses a sophisticated form of sonar to create a mental representation of three-dimensional space. It emits a high-pitched squeak, undetectable to the human ear from a directable flap of skin above its nose, which then reflects off objects back into its fluffy, radar dish-like ears. This method of mapping its environment is so effective that a bat can detect a tiny insect on a leaf, then deftly approach it from an oblique angle, catching it by surprise. And while scientists have studied how this process works, it is impossible for humans to imagine what it would be like to see the world like a bat, Despite providing a physical explanation for how bat sonar works, we can never know what it is really like to be a bat. The phenomenological experience of being a bat is not reducible, even if the mechanics of it are. Nagel did not provide this example to dispute physicalism. He did it rather to demonstrate that it is limited in its explanatory powers so far. Nagel was quick to point out that just because a theory does not have all of the answers yet does not mean it is wrong. We should therefore be careful not to throw the material baby out with the metaphysical bathwater. Bat sonar is a physical mechanism though, so what about non-physical human concepts such as ethics or morality? Morality is conceptual unreality. We can imagine an ethic, it feels like something to experience honesty or justice or their opposites, but these concepts do not exist in physical space. They may be caused by actual or imagined events, but if perceived by us as true, they have a causal impact on our choices and our actions. They make us feel a certain way, and we may be thus compelled to act in physical reality in response to those emotional mental states. The experience of morality is immaterial, but it has material consequences. So there must be an interface between the immaterial and the material, but is morality an immaterial sort of social quail of human consciousness that supervenes on physical reality, or is it emergent acting back onto the physical world? 
a material explanation, employs the domain of neuroscience to reduce the physical elements of the brain and its functional mechanisms. Researchers from the University of Barcelona wrote about this in a study on morality. They said, quote, Morality is a set of complex emotional and cognitive processes reflected across many brain domains. The moral brain does not exist per se. Rather, moral processes engage specific structures of both the emotional and the cognitive brains, and the difference with respect to other cognitive and emotional processes may lie in the content of these processes rather than in specific circuits. End quote. Just as the color red can be perceived through physical mechanisms in the organs of the eye and the brain, the emotional responses that we feel to socially constructed concepts are also perceived via physical mechanisms within the brain and nervous system. Ever more detailed explanations from the physical sciences may need no further elaboration, or they may still leave us feeling unsatisfied. Subjective experience is real because it feels real. Its process of action is detectable and measurable using specific instruments, but these provide indicators of process rather than uh, as analogues of experience. We know something is going on, but not what is going on. They're like the ripples on the surface of the water, which reveal little about the object which caused them. When searching for an explanation, we must consider dualism. This goes back to the eponymous philosopher René Descartes, who's one of history's most well-known dualists. He believed in God, and so his work attempted to use reason alone to prove the existence of God. And in so doing, he established that there must be both a physical body and a non-physical soul. But both must interact because we experience in the physical world. So he theorized that there must be a point of interface between the physical and the non-physical. Descartes speculated that this point of intersection between the real and the surreal might be the pituitary gland. Now, we know this is incorrect. The pituitary gland is a remarkable organ, but it does not appear to be a leaping off point into the immaterial. However, Descartes' dualist reasoning inspired many other great thinkers to think carefully about this perspective and to challenge Descartes' views. One such opponent was the political philosopher Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes was a materialist. He believed that the human body and mind could be reduced only to the corporeal, that which fills space. The incorporeal was rationally impossible, as something incorporeal was by definition unable to take up space, and therefore the concept itself was contradictory. However, Hobbes's position fails when subjected to the non-physical experience, whatever form that may take. We do not need to invoke spirits, mythological creatures or ghosts to consider the incorporeal. We need only to look to our own minds and the vast imaginary landscape it creates when we drift off to the land of Nod. We are led then to a question of what is real if we are to consider whether there can be both immaterial and an immaterial in reality. There are many definitions of real. We won't go down the rabbit hole right now, but consider our explanations of physical reality thus far. To be material, a thing must take up space. But we know that explanation is incomplete because of concepts and experiences which have no physical properties that exist entirely within the psychological realm. But they must have causal powers. They either affect or are affected by something else. From a subjective perspective, when we dream, we enter a dimension of reality which is entirely detached from waking reality. However, it is no less convincing to us. We may even be fortunate enough to lucid dream from time to time, to be aware that we are dreaming and to have some agency within that strange realm. We may say that dreams are not real in a material sense, thankfully, but they feel real. But is that enough? 
We can monitor the telltale theta brainwaves or the flickering eyelids of REM sleep that indicate dreaming. But these are physical effects of dreaming. But the world our mind has drifted off to, is that real? Let me put the question a different way. Is dreaming evidence that there is an immaterial nature to reality? Or is dreaming simply another version of experience tethered to material reality? We don't really go anywhere. No soul drifts off to some other place while we dream. It would seem then that dreaming is not a satisfactory argument against materialism, as bizarre and immaterial as our dreams can seem to be. In a similar vein, consider then an image or a painting. The painting itself is material, but the thing which it depicts is not. A picture of a shark, ripples of sunlight reflecting off its leathery skin, appear perfectly real to our eye. But it is not. It is a depiction of reality, a conception of the material, linked to the immaterial idea of a shark by painting canvas. In my mind, I know the shark is not real, but I see it as a shark nonetheless. The very concept of a shark is a construct within my mind, immutable but entirely immaterial. No amount of brain scans or dissections of my brain will ever find a shark, whether real or conceptual, but the conceptual shark cannot exist without my brain. The real shark could care less. It would exist regardless. The notion of a shark began in the physical, so it must be material, but it eventually takes on a different form, an immaterial form. Consider the earlier example of the concept of velocity, or perhaps of a triangle, or even the number two. These concepts are immaterial, they exist as constructs only in the mind, yet they have powerful effects on physical reality. So would it be incorrect to say that humans invented velocity, or the number two, or the concept of time? If so, then where did these concepts come from? They do not exist in physical space, but they were not a product of supervenient experience which has its foundations in physical reality. They are something like immutable facts about physical reality while not being physical themselves. They can exist in physical space, I can draw the number two, or measure an arbitrary passage of time, so I could use these concepts to do things in the physical world, but I did not invent them, and I cannot see them. They were there before we were even here to think of them, and so it is of all of the laws of nature. It seems that there must exist an entire dimension of reality which is beyond the physical, but without which the physical could not exist. This seems something of a paradox, that the physical and the immaterial both exist and are interdependent on each other. Thus far, we have considered elements of Western philosophical thoughts on materialism. However, it may be surprising that it's also a feature of Eastern philosophy as well. Traditional Chinese medicine, for example, considers the life force of the human body, or qi, as being comprised of two main physical interactions. The first is classically physical, consisting of the nourishing elements of the physical world, things like water, air, food, and what we consume. The second is insubstantial, but consists of a vital energy that flows throughout the body. A similar naturalistic thread runs through certain Theravada Buddhist teachings which attempt to demonstrate that the self is the product of five physical aggregates, although non-reductivist teachings can also be found throughout Buddhist schools of thought. The case of materialism, then, is strong, and while we may not be able to reduce every thought to physical space, it would be absurd to claim that the mind is anything but an emergent phenomenon of a conscious brain. The mind, then, is a so-called epiphenomenon, a shadow left by the physical impression of the brain. However, if this is true, then it begs the question, 
At what level of physical reality does epiphenomenal experience begin? Chimps and bonobos are unquestionably sentient, as are dogs and cats. But what about fish, shrimp or bats? Perhaps we could just say, without much resistance, that all biological organisms have an epiphenomenal, irreducible experience, something that it is like to be them. But if the physical is all there is, and we do not understand how the immaterial emerges from the physical, then what's to say that it's not something to be like a tree, a rock, or an atom of hydrogen? This notion, loosely, is panpsychism. It's also beyond the scope of this episode, but we must accept that if we believe in a physicalist material explanation of reality, without being able to explain what that phenomenon really is, then we are making assumptions from our own subjective experience of that reality. This is a position with inherent limitations, biases and constraints. We cannot know what it is like to be another person, let alone a bat, a tree or a rock. Materialism is the prevailing paradigm of our time, despite the fact that the majority of humanity believes in an immaterial reality beyond the physical world. We may feel glimpses of that immaterial world through our epiphenomenal experience, yet these can be explained by neuroscience and other physicalist endeavours. In the following episodes, we'll continue to explore the nature of the physical materialist paradigm, but I would invite you to consider gaps in our understanding which you feel may offer an insight into whether there are indeed non-materialistic aspects of reality which cannot be explained by our current understanding of the mind and the brain. Are we destined to one day know all there is to know about conscious experience, or are there some intrinsic aspects of it that will always remain a mystery? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.